Hello, and thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. The Shadok Creek leak ends with a guilty plea. Paul Bernardo will stay in medium security. A local politician is getting hammered for her anti-police rhetoric. Three swatting incidents in town are still being investigated. Ontario's construction sector needs more workers. Good news for pet lovers. And will you attempt the Barbenheimer double feature? Find out more on the GMH podcast. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Five years, believe it or not, after news broke that 24 billion liters of raw sewage splashed into Shadow Creek over a four-year period. It was between 2014-2018. Five years later, the city of Hamilton has pleaded guilty in Ontario court to charges related to that incident. Our legal counsel went back to the city council and laid out the case and kind of where we're at. At the end of the day, both legals agreed that this would be in the best interest of the public, and, and that's kind of where we landed. That is the voice of General Manager of Public Works, uh, Carlisle Kahn, who says the fine was arrived upon based on a joint submission from the city and the province. Here to talk more about it is Nick Winters. He's the director of Hamilton Water with the city of Hamilton. Nick, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Rick. Thanks for having me. I think a lot of people are still trying to, uh, you know, wrap their head around how this happened all those years ago. Can you give us a recap? Yeah, I mean, the short story is that there was a, a control gate in our main King CSO tank um, that was opened uh, slightly uh, back in January of 2014. Um, and we've been unable to determine exactly how that happened or, or who might have done that. Uh, and there was some um, complicating factors Um from a a procedural perspective, the procedures that uh, that our staff follow with regards to operating operating the facilities, there are errors in those procedures, and and that led to errors in our computer system and and the staff. Um, unfortunately, um, you know, they were thinking the facility was operating properly, and that wasn't the case. Were there also? I'm not sure if you can even speak to this. Were there also errors in the communication, whether it was between departments or with the public, on what exactly happened? Yeah, so I don't, I don't think so, um, and and I'm sure there might be different perspectives uh, about that. But you know, the the infrastructure here is is really under you know my team's responsibility, um, the water, wastewater, stormwater utility, um, and you know any communications related to how that system operates or, or issues um, with that infrastructure do lie within our responsibility as well. Uh, so from uh, from the perspective um, of city staff were involved, it was it was a very narrow uh, group. It was restricted uh, generally to Hamilton Water, uh, and then the communications were were with our partners. The uh, the fine uh, for pleading guilty was two point one million dollars, and I know there's other you know charges related to that, and some of that money is going to go to the Royal Botanical Gardens. Is that a, I mean you're in this game? Is that a is that a big fine? Is that an average fine? Is that on the low scale? How would you describe that? I'm sad to say that, uh, and repeat what the province said yesterday, that it's the most significant fine in Ontario's history under the Ontario Water Resources Act. You know, it was a, it was a pretty sad day yesterday for City of Hamilton City staff and, and City Council. Uh, and it's a, it's a matter that we take very personally. And is that number related to, I guess, the extent of damage done to the creek? Um, I would say it's it's more related to you know the fact that there was a a discharge uh, that was ongoing on and off for a four year period. I mean, that's a long time, and and certainly 
um, you know, uh, factors related to the amount of, of impact of the natural environment are considered by the Crown when they when they lay out their case. Um, but I, I would suggest it had a lot more to do with the duration of, of how long that lasted. Fair enough. Nick Winters is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Mr. Winters is the director of Hamilton Water with the City of Hamilton. And we're talking about the guilty plea yesterday by the City of Hamilton in relation to the Shadok Creek uh, spill or leak of so many years ago. When we're f- focusing on the health of the creek, how, how is it? How, how much damage was caused? Yeah, unfortunately, you know, this is an area that during regular operation of the city's wastewater system, given its its age and and design having combined sewers, it receives discharges like this on a very regular basis, um, which is also a sad thing to say about about the system that that we need to operate, right? Um, so from the perspective of what was discharged into the creek, it wasn't anything abnormal that that creek wouldn't have received on a, on a frequent basis. It was the, it was the quantity and the, and the duration. And we have seen that, I mean, the creek recovered, uh, from a water quality perspective very quickly, uh, after the gate was closed. Um, really what we're dealing with now is the nutrients related to that spill that have collected in sediment, both in Shadok Creek and, and in uh, Coots Paradise. And how do we prevent those nutrients from uh, from coming out of that sediment, both now and in the future, and causing issues like uh, algae broom, blooms and, and loss of oxygen and things like that? I know dredging efforts are uh, underway in Shadok Creek, which is great to see. But I want to talk, and we've got about a minute to do so, about prevention efforts in the future how do we prevent something like this from happening what's being done yeah so i mean i hope that the community would would expect and appreciate that there's been a lot of changes uh within hamilton waters operations as a result of this event um you know um significant detailed reviews of all of our critical infrastructure that could really uh could lead to a any type of discharge uh, of sewage to the natural environment uh, looking at all those procedures and things that staff are following um, that I was talking about to make sure that they are uh, extremely accurate the way that they need to be, you know, beefing up communications protocols. We installed a, a quality management system for our, for our wastewater uh, operations, which speaks to uh, consistent review, uh, ensuring documentation is placed and that decisions are recorded um, and that we are reviewing and, and um improving those processes continually so you know things like that as well as you know technological uh, changes installing uh, flow monitors where they where they didn't used to exist such as you know on the on the downstream side of the gate in question that uh, that never should have been open in the first place making sure that if there ever was a discharge like this and, and i would say that we can't prevent you know every possible thing from happening in our system but then when something like this happens uh, that we absolutely know that it's happening and that staff know what it means and what to do about it well unfortunately uh, we we are you know suffering the effects of the fine but it's nice to turn the page and also nice to know that uh, some positive things are happening uh, here in the city of hamilton in regards to uh, this file going forward nick always appreciate your time thanks for stopping by Thanks very much for having me, Rick. Nick Winters is the director of Hamilton Water with the city of Hamilton. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Yesterday, we did hear finally from the commissioner of the Correctional Service Canada on what happened with this transfer. And Ann Kelly says the decision followed all their proper laws and protocols and that it was sound. I have been with CSC for close to 40 years. And I know that our feelings towards offenders cannot guide our decisions. 
Our system only works if we continue to carry out our duties according to the rule of law. In addition to that, Kelly said they have to strengthen how they communicate with victims' families when moving high-profile criminals, which, yeah, makes all the sense in the world. This issue has also been a political hot potato, especially for the Trudeau government, mainly around what and when they knew about this transfer. Kim Wright is the founder and principal of Wright Strategies and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Kim, thanks for waking up with us. How are you today? I'm fantastic. Thanks for having me. First off, I'll just say I don't agree with this decision. I understand that Bernardo met all the, you know, the, the parameters for this transfer, but I think he should have been the exception to the rule. Before we get into the politics of this, how, how does this transfer sit with you? It, it doesn't sit well. You know, I grew up in the time of Paul Bernardo stalking victims throughout the GTHA. And, you know, you talk to people, you know, around my age who grew up in that same time. And we still have chills when we think about Kristen French and Leslie Mahaffey and Tammy Homolka and those 14 at least other women that Paul Bernardo, young girls, frankly, not even women yet, young girls who were raped by Paul Bernardo while he was the Scarborough rapist. There are so many aspects of this that change the trajectory of how uh, women growing up, w- girls, women, and families growing up saw their own safety and their own community. So this is one of those watershed moments when, frankly, you know, if you're going to put a dangerous offender tag on a prisoner, there are so many aspects to that that doesn't sit well with the public when we say, oh, but now it's okay to move him to a minimum security or a medium security uh, prison. Either he's a dangerous offender, which he has been deemed by the courts and everyone else, or he's not. But the reality is he has always been a dangerous offender. Well said. From a political standpoint, Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino claims he didn't know about Bernardo's transfer until after it was done. I think he said he found out the day the day after. The PM claims he found out the day of. Either way, I mean, whether they're telling the truth or not, this whole situation has not painted the government in a good light. No, it hasn't. And there were paper trails that show that they they knew before or they ought to have known because someone in their respective staffs were briefed on this. Now, you'll also remember, Rick, that this that some of these documents were coming up at the same time they were dealing or not dealing. Uh, with the foreign interference situation and whether or not, you know, former public safety minister Bill Blair could access his email portals or briefing notes and all of those fiascos. So again, this does not paint the government in a very good light that they don't read their briefing notes. They somehow didn't know who Paul Bernardo was, except for the prime minister's point person on this in his office, was a reporter covering the Bernardo case. So all of this passes, it does not pass any version of a smell test. And that's what's not sitting right. And it is becoming an ongoing uh, pattern with this government. And there's also the politics that it's conveniently being wrapped up when there's probably going to be a cabinet shuffle next week 
And Mr. Mendicino will likely not be the public safety minister after this. So it's all a bit uh, passing strange and definitely doesn't pass the smell test. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Kim Wright, the founder and principal of Wright Strategies. We're talking about the transfer of Paul Bernardo to maximum to medium security and the Correctional Service Canada yesterday saying that it was sound and they're sticking with their decision. Do you think that Pierre Poiliev and Jagmeet Singh capitalized as best they could have on this file? There are so many aspects to the incompetence of this government on how they manage uh, or mismanage these types of processes. And they hide behind, well, it is sound reasoning. We heard the uh, Ms. Kelly talk about that. The sound reasoning isn't, well, maybe technically true. It is not politically true. And those things are very different. And that's why you have seen the minister uh, of public safety, Mr. Mendicino, and the prime minister bungle this all the way through. It was, we weren't briefed. Now the minister wants to be briefed directly. Oh, no, we followed all the processes and protocols. Oh, well, maybe the old, this should be on a need-to-know basis. None of this, Rick, instills confidence in the government or the minister or their internal processes. And it's not like these guys were just elected five minutes ago. These guys have been in office now uh, since 2015. Mr. Mendicino is a former federal prosecutor, is a lawyer, clearly would have been familiar with Paul Bernardo and his heinous crimes. How they did not have these protocols in place, how did they seem to be caught unaware that Canada's most notorious serial killer uh, was going to be up once again for parole? I agree that we need to have all sorts of conversations about how do we make sure victims of crimes are identified and that families uh, and the survivors are notified when there are bail hearings and there are parole hearings and there might be movement. These things should be communicated well in advance. And they weren't in this case. And this becomes one of those lightning rod moments that every other victim of crime says, yeah, you know, whether it is intimate partner violence, uh, other aspects of crime, and these folks are moved or or um, or released in some cases, and they're not the the survivors are not told that this is happening. So all of this undermines our belief in the in the parole system, the criminal justice system, and frankly, further erodes our uh, democracy in this case. Yeah, this whole thing has been fumbled from top to bottom, from Correctional Service Canada to uh, the, the government's response and when they found out or when they didn't know. And it's just been a complete mess top to bottom. Kim, we'll have to leave it there. Really appreciate you waking up with us this morning. Always a pleasure. That is Kim Wright, founder and principal of Wright Strategies. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Hamilton NDP MPP Sarah Jama at it again and getting blasted and rightfully so, in my opinion, for throwing her support behind the anti-police movement. She issued a tweet last month saying that she was riding in the accessibility van at the anti-fascist abolitionist Pride March led by the No Pride in Policing Coalition. Now, that coalition describes itself as an anti-racist, queer, and trans group formed to support Black Lives Matter, focused on defunding and abolishing the police. Now, you may remember that Ms. Jama apologized back in March for making anti-Semitic comments. She deleted hundreds of her tweets and also committed to do better. Well, 
Jamie Bannon is the president of the Hamilton Police Association and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Jamie, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm appreciative of your words of support, and so are my 1,300 members. Thank you. As I said in my email to you earlier this week, I think it's it's reprehensible for anyone, let alone an elected official, to give oxygen to this narrative of defunding or even abolishing the police. Um, how does what Sarah Jamis said make you feel? Well, I think it's very clear how it's going to make anyone in the police community feel. It's disheartening to know that an elected official would use your voice in this way. I mean, I was hoping to join you today to speak about great things that the Hamilton police are doing, but instead we're wrapped around the actions and comments of our elected official that support and downplay violence against anyone. I mean, it's completely revolting when you know what Hamilton is experiencing, violence and fear and the concerns in the community at large. Do you think her rhetoric and her stance on policing, again, she's supporting an organization, a coalition that wants to abolish the police. As an elected official, is her voice dangerous? I feel the rhetoric is completely dangerous. It's not consistent with what the community at large wants. I mean, we've said many times everybody deserves to feel safe in their homes and their communities. They've made it loud and clear. They want support. And in Hamilton especially, they've attended the police service, police service board meetings um, from the same riding, which she represents, asking for increased presence of police and support. So she's not representing her own riding, let alone uh, the communities of Hamilton who deserve to feel safe. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Jamie Bannon, the president of the Hamilton Police Association, this uh, coalition, the No Pride in Policing Coalition, uh, which again, MPP Sarah Jamma is supporting, has called for all police budgets to be immediately slashed in half and that money be used for things like social housing, better public transit, other social supports. What impact would a 50% budget cut have on Hamilton Police and, and your ability to serve and protect this city? Currently, we're having a hard enough time keeping up with what we have in resources and funding. It's affecting everything we do from our delivery of service as well as our recruiting and our retention. A 50% cut is ridiculous. It's not at all in line with the times at all. It's, it's so dangerous and ridiculous, I can't even say. I mean, Sarah, MPP Sarah Jamma needs to get with the program. We're always open to promoting safety and condemning violence in Hamilton and working with all stakeholders, elected officials. I mean, there's always a better way to deliver some services, but at the same time, everybody has to come to the table and there has to be a discussion because the only service that's available 24-7 is the police service. You mentioned you had 1,300 members. Would a 50% budget cut mean 50% less officers? Exactly, 50% less officers. All resources would be cut. I mean, we can't keep the city safe now. We believe that we are actually under strength by over 100 officers. The community is continuing to grow in our numbers of resources and officers we have has not grown for many, many years. So it's hard enough to keep up with the calls for service now. I can't imagine what a cut in service would mean to safety in our communities. How are officers feeling about that? You just said that, you know, it's it's really tough to keep this city safe. And, and at some points, it's it's almost impossible to do so. What's what's the morale of, of the members? The morale within the police service um, has its challenges. It's uh, lower than normal. We experience burnout with our members. But understand that we're very lucky to have the quality of members we do that do the work they do because they work so hard for this community. Uh, they go above and beyond every shift, doing a great job to make sure the community is safe. But they are definitely stretched to the, the max right now. 
Are we've heard of defunding and even abolishing in this case two things that I'm you know both against. We've also heard about detasking, as in allowing others, other agencies, to take the lead in certain situations. You know, mental health crises come to mind. Are, are police officers open to this? I would tell you the police chief and the command staff, as well as police officers, are all open to trying to do uh, join with community groups or uh, different resources to deliver better service or in a different way. But to detask without that evidence-based discussion and collaborative work would be very dangerous. Uh, I do want to talk about some of the good things that Hamilton police are doing. And one thing that comes to mind, and we had police chief Frank Bergen in studio not that long ago talking about the core patrol in which officers park their car downtown, do a little walkabout, interact with some of the shopkeepers and other residents downtown. How's that going? Well, that's a welcome uh, uh, piece for the people and the businesses downtown. They feel safe to see the police back downtown. We've done that for years. It was taken away as a result of um, lack of staffing and ability to do so. But now that it's excuse me, now it's back, I've heard positive reviews. The, the uh, officers enjoy it. They build relationships. And that is a big part of how we work together with our communities. It's also, you know, a great way for officers to, you know, get down to that grassroots levels, the word that kind of comes to mind and just speak with people and kind of interact and and prove that you guys are human as well. Yes, we're members of the same community, which we police, and we want it to be safe. Uh, We interact with people all the time and we enjoy that. It's it's really refreshing to speak to people, offer them some advice and find out what's really matters to them. Jamie, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show and talk about what's happening with the Hamilton Police. Thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. Have a great day. You too. Jamie Bannon is the president of the Hamilton Police Association. Listen, I, I'll invite the NDP on the show. We, we have done so with Miss Jam in the past. More often than not, at the last minute, she's not available. Uh, but we'll put a call in to NDP leader Mart Stiles to say, hey, listen, one of your members again is teetering on the brink of, I'm not even sure what the word is. I mean, I can use insanity, but she I mean, it, it, it's not that far off the, the plank. So we'll put a call into Marit Stiles and see you know, whether or not this is the, uh, the Ontario NDP's official position. Do they want to defund or abolish the police? I can't see that. Can you? We'll have that uh, discussion, hopefully, sometime next week. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We love having fun on a Friday, but we do have to talk about some serious issues as well, including our next issue. And that is swatting. And if you don't know what swatting is, it's basically phony calls to police to get them to respond to a fake incident. And it's really a strain on resources and and I would imagine very frustrating for officers involved. Here to give us a glimpse of what has happened this week is Constable Indy Barrage with Hamilton Police. Constable Barrage, good morning. How are you? Great. Uh, Thanks for having us uh, on the show and uh, bringing some uh, light to this, uh, I guess, incidents that have been occurring a little bit in the last three days. Yeah, very concerning. So take us through what has been, what what can I only imagine, a, a very frustrating situation and a frustrating week for Hamilton Police. Yeah, Rick, uh, uh, gone are the days that where a prank would be simply knocking on a door and running away. Uh, these are the new age pranks, and unfortunately, they tie up resources, cause fear and panic among those affected, and uh, with that comes uh, criminal ramifications when the suspects are identified. In, uh, in most recent with Hamilton Police and uh, other our first responder partners, we had three swatting calls over three days, on, on mon- one on Monday and then the other on Tuesday and another on uh, Wednesday. 
So one was a bomb threat, or a f- turned out obviously to be a fake bomb threat. Uh, another two calls in regards to uh, what were very serious circumstances around shootings that never did happen. This, at the end of the day, is really a drain on resources, a, a tremendous waste of police resources. It is, yeah. Let's go with the one on uh, Monday, uh, July 17th, shortly before 10 p.m., Hamilton police responded to what they believed at the time was a active shooter, uh, along with our uh, multiple officers, um, paramedic and firefighters attended as well and set up a medical treatment location because we believed at that time that there was an active shooting going on and we were setting up for individuals possibly getting injured and requiring treatment uh, at the scene. So it did, it tied up a lot of resources. On top, uh, it was a high-risk situation. And when calls like these are made, it puts our officers and community members affected at risk. Absolutely. There was a, um, a bomb threat made uh, in connection with Hamilton Health Sciences that obviously didn't materialize. No explosive devices were located on Tuesday. And then another incident the following day, early in the morning on Wednesday, in which someone called in to say that their mom and dad were arguing, shots were fired, their mom was laying on the ground, and the father had fled, and, and that turned out to be false as well. The question is... You know, police cannot not respond to these calls. They have to take every call as a serious one. Can anything be done to avoid this? Uh, unfortunately, at this time, there isn't. The phone calls are made and we have to respond accordingly. Um, now, I wouldn't say that these types of calls have become normal or have hit a state of normal where these we're receiving these calls on a constant basis. Mm-hmm. And I, I hope that time can come because with that, I would think a time would come where uh, a cry wolf scenario could take place and our officers may begin to show signs of a relaxed response or police may stop re- deploying the resources uh, due to preconceived thought that uh, it could be a prank. And that one time that it is real, lives that the incident is real, the lives of both officers and community members could be put at risk yeah, because right. our officers attend to these locations with firearms drawn. Yeah, we certainly don't want to see that scenario play out for sure. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Constable Indy Barrage from Hamilton Police is on the air with us today talking about the swatting incidents this week. There's been three in three days, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. The search for suspects, how difficult is it in a case like this? It is difficult because they're being done through multiple means. Uh, two of the three swatting calls were through a VoIP number. Now, this is a, for your listeners. It's a voice over internet protocol, which is a call made through an internet line and not a hardwired line uh, through a provider. And by using this VoIP number, these callers were able to mask and hide their locations by utilizing the number and different methods, uh, such as apps or a VPN. And a VPN is just an acronym for a virtual private network. And this thing helps uh, these users to encrypt their location and disguise their online identity, which makes it uh, these types of sort of uh, investigations time-consuming and difficult to track uh, suspects. I know the investigation is ongoing, but is there any information that connects any of these incidents together? Not at this time. Um, what we can say is that the incident on Wednesday, the, uh, the one that was a shooting over in uh, the Purnell Drive area, are dispatcher or call taker uh, kind of questioned the caller about if they were the same individual that called two days prior Hmm. and uh, the individual hung up immediately um, which was kind of a red flag for us so we didn't uh, deploy the same amount of resources we were able to send two to three officers at that time and uh, just conduct a door knock and we're able to 
I guess, negate the validity of the call. Yeah. If and or when a suspect is apprehended, would this just fall under mischief or is there something more serious? Now, a public mischief would be a, would be one of the charges laid. Now, it would depend on the investigation and how it moves forward. Right. Could there be a terrorism or terrorist um, charge? Yeah, it could be. It all depends what follow through uh, and what evidence is uh, presented. And obviously, if anyone knows anything in terms of you know what what has been happening, you know, a call to police or Crime Stoppers to to get this to stop would be greatly appreciated. It, it would. It would. Uh, it would help us move forward with the investigation. Uh, obviously, like I said, it, it is time-consuming because it's done through internet lines and multiple ways of uh, disguising themselves or masking their locations. It, it does take up quite a bit of resources. We have our uh, criminal investigations branch, uh, Detective uh, Tremis, uh, Petro Tremis, working on this one. And uh, if anybody has information, we'd, uh, we'll gladly take the call. Yeah, you can call police or go to CrimestoppersHamilton.com or give Crime Stoppers a call as well, 1-800-222-TIPS. That's 1-800-222-8477. Well, good luck with this. Uh, we know that our, uh, our our people in uniform in this community have much better things to do than uh, be uh, swatted by uh, you know members of this community that obviously have no better things to do themselves. Uh, best of luck with this investigation, Constable Raj, and I appreciate your time today. Thank you for having us. Take care. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Ontario's construction sector, in my opinion, is at a critical juncture. We're in crisis mode because, as you know, as you well know, we need a lot more homes built in this country. And with that comes a lot more other infrastructure projects. But we simply don't have enough skilled laborers to do all this heavy lifting. Robert Bronk is the CEO of the Ontario Construction Secretariat, one of the organizations that is trying to push the needle ahead and move this ball up this mountain to get more skilled laborers uh, on the job site. Robert, good morning. Tell us about the Secretariat, first and foremost. What do you guys do? Well, we represent the um, the ICI sector. There's seven different sectors of construction in Ontario. So we're the industrial, commercial, and institutional sector. And we are across the province. We're a not-for-profit. We have unions and and labor, labor and management um, uh, board of directors. We're funded by the industry, not through taxpayers. And we just represent the industry in many different ways. So you are building things like factories and warehouses and strip malls and stuff like that? Yes, and schools, um, Warehouse, yes, exactly. Warehouses, those kinds of things. So when it comes to the skilled labor force in this particular construction sector, where are we at? Well, there's a lot of opportunities. Um, we don't like to call it a crisis, but there's a lot of opportunities for, for uh, people who are looking for careers, not just jobs. So that's what we're trying to promote, that these are careers, not simply jobs. They are rewarding. They have a whole skills um, associated with each of their trade, there's benefits, there's pensions, there's a lot of opportunities for uh, creating your own job, starting your own job as well after what you get your uh, your credentials. Give us an example of what kind of jobs people would be doing. Okay, most people know the standard jobs, you know, like like for example, a carpenter, a painter, electrician. But there's a lot of there's actually 25 different trades in our sector, many of which most people don't know about. And so, like, there's boilermakers, millwrights, and people don't know what they even do. So I think there's misconceptions in that regard. They don't know about all the opportunities because they don't know about all the different options. I, like, I liken it to a doctor. You know, you've got cardiologists who deal with heart. You have oncologists who deal with cancer. You have surgeons who deal with uh, ligaments and knees. They're all doctors, 
but they all have a different set of skills, and that's very similar to the skilled trades. There's a whole series of trades that people aren't aware of that there's opportunities in, and there's, they're, they're well-paying, and there's a, there's a whole career path associated with each one. We're talking about the skilled trade shortage with Robert Bronk, the CEO of the Ontario Construction Secretariat, on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. How many people are you guys short? How, how, many, how many people can the industry want to handle here? Okay, so because of retirements and the increase in construction, over the next 10 years, the, out, the forecast for Ontario is approximately 88,000 new entrants. So we're talking significant numbers. Wow. Is there still a misconception about the blue-collar, skilled trades, work person? Absolutely. Most people deal with what they see. So when they drive by a construction site frequently, you know, they're working on the, the foundation or they see people working on roads or um, putting in new water mains, those kinds of things, they don't see what actually goes inside of a building once the walls are up. And there's a whole set of trades um, and individuals that are inside those buildings, inside those structures that they don't see. And so many of these jobs are high-tech. They're, they're greening the, the environment as well. That this, this new green literacy has really impacted the construction industry. So there's a whole series of jobs and skills that people generally don't know about because they don't see them. And they tend to use what they see as, as a... Um, a guide for the whole industry. So it's simply way more complex than what you just see when you drive by. Well, I'll encourage our younger listeners or their parents or grandparents to uh, check out uh, places like Mohawk College, other institutions to find out how they can get involved in the skilled trades and have a rewarding career. Robert, thanks for your time this morning. Thank you for having me, Rick. Robert Bronk is the CEO of the Ontario Construction Secretariat. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Talk about a good news story in our community, and it comes from the Hamilton Burlington SPCA because it is in grow mode. It's adding to its fleet of vehicles. Um, to help pets and pet owners in the community. Here to talk about it is the CEO of the Hamilton Burlington SPCA, John Girard. John, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Thanks for having me. So talk about your new expansion plans when it comes to your mobile unit. Absolutely. Well, again, you know, Rick, I think it's important to recap. uh, The Hamilton Burlington SPCA has been around for about 135 years but it's important to know 42% of the population in Hamilton own a companion animal of some kind, which is probably part of the pre-COVID uh, changes in the way in which we we stuck out at home and wanted some furry and, and some friends. But what's happened coming out of COVID is we needed to expand our accessibility. The demand is growing for access to vet care within our community. And so we decided to launch an expansion of our outreach programs, that being our pet shuttle transportation program and and some local community cat programming around wild feral cats and and also uh, areas in the wellness area. So we wanted to create the vehicles to allow us to get out to the community, go to the community um, to serve the growing demand that is facing our animal care population. So you have five new dedicated vehicles to do this, and I understand these were donated? Well, they came in from donors. So as you know, uh, maybe not know, uh, the SPCA is not government funded. So these vehicles were fully funded by our donor community, people that were uh 
concerned and wanted us to serve the greater population, those that may be in 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 some financial uh, trouble or those that could not uh, get to us uh, uh, or just needed a helping hand in order to help the health of their animals. So they funded the program, they funded the vehicles, we've matched the staff, and now we're going to take it on the road and we're hoping to be able to serve an additional 3,500 animals a year with these vehicles. Wow, that's pretty cool. John, you mentioned that one part of this expansion is a first of its kind, and that's the pedal, pet, the pedal, the pet shuttle program. Can you talk about the importance of this and, and what impact it's going to have? Absolutely. So, Rick, a lot of folks, whether they own a car or don't or take public transit, a lot of folks that may also be in low income situations where they just don't have the disposable income, we know they spend a lot of money on making sure their animals and their pets are healthy. But what we want, what we wanted to do was to get a vehicle to help folks transport them and their love furly friends to us and so this program is going to be a game changer for probably up to a thousand people in our community which will allow us to pick them up in the morning bring them to the hospital have their their surgery and then get them home by the end of the day without causing them to spend more money so that is purely thanks to our donor community who who picked this rally and helped us make this happen got another minute with john gerard the ceo of the hamilton burlington spca they've added to their fleet of vehicles as part of a new and expanded pet and animal care services mobile unit getting out into the community and caring after people's pets. Uh, Part of it is uh, still a call for more foster pet parents to come forward. What kind of uh, numbers are you hoping to see? Well, we need a hundred new foster families. We have different levels. We have an emergency foster program, short term, and then we have an end of life program. We're looking for individuals who can open their homes for periods of time to take on these vulnerable animals that just need the love and care that we want to get them out of these kennels and into a loving environment and then get them adopted to their next forever home. So we still need a hundred new foster families in our community. And that's for cats and dogs? Cats and dogs. Absolutely, Rick. Uh, the SPCA is, uh, it's on our website. People can contact us there and, and, and you know, everything is covered. All the costs are covered, food, toys, equipment, medical. We just need a loving home. Well, it sounds like a win-win-win for all involved. And uh, it's nice to see uh, grow mode when it comes to the Hamilton Burlington SPCA, because we know a lot of pets are going to be cared for uh, as well. John, really appreciate your time this morning. Thanks, Rick, for having me and appreciate it. And uh, our pets are looking out for you. Sounds good. John Gerard is the CEO of the Hamilton Burlington SPCA. Hey, I got three cats and a dog myself, so I know where you are coming from when it comes to caring for pets. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. It is being called the hottest double dip of the 2023 movie season. On one hand, you have Barbie starring Margot Robbie. On the other end of the movie spectrum, Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. And some movie lovers are planning to watch both flicks on the same day. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, a good old-fashioned double feature. Barbenheimer is actually a thing. Here to talk about it is Brett McGarry. He's the co-host of The Couch Potatoes and The Starch on sister station CJOB in Winnipeg. Brett, good morning. How are you? Greetings to you, sir. I'm doing okay. How are you? I'm fantastic. First off, what has happened to the double feature? Has it died because movies are just too long nowadays? (laughs) 
That's a great question um, because you like when you look at Oppenheimer, it's it's a three hour movie, and more and more of these movies that come out these days are eclipsing two and a half hours. Like John Wick Chapter Four was two hours, I think, and forty six minutes. So it's not like these these super long movies used to be reserved for uh, serious dramatic historical epics like a schindler's list for example that's an extreme example that's a four-hour movie but or something like lord of the lord of the rings movies you can understand why those movies were three hours because there's so much material but now we're seeing it with the fast and the furious movies we're seeing it with all these superhero movies they're all two and a half hours some of them pushing closer to three hours and it to me it's getting a little out of hand and uh even Indiana Jones was over two and a half hours, I think. And while I enjoyed that movie, there there was something to be said about the simplicity of the original trilogy because they all clocked in right around two hours and they just snap along at a blistering pace. So a lot of these movies, they think they're serving the audience and I often wonder if they're just hurting themselves and the audience. That's a great point. And, you know, when you put these two movies together, Oppenheimer and Barbie, you're clocking in at a grand total of about five-ish hours. So for anyone who is spending that amount of time in the movie theater, that's a commitment in and of itself. But I want to ask you this. If someone is planning to do a Barbenheimer double feature tonight or sometime this weekend, which one would you recommend people watch first? Killian Murphy killing it as the creator of the atomic bomb <laughs> or, or, or Greta Gerwig's playful take on the iconic Mattel uh, doll. Oh man, that's a good one because when you look at the way that the, we, just look at network television, typically network TV, uh, network TV lineup would often start with their comedies mm -hmm. and then they would move into a drama and then even a more serious drama or something a little darker or maybe something that's a bit more crime heavy so uh, it, uh, it i imagine that was done just based on the timing whereas the comedy typically was more family friendly fair and then you put on the crime stuff a little bit later on but um yeah i think i think you'd probably be better to start with barbie because then you go in you have your fun and then you buckle down for the the seriousness of Oppenheimer, and then because if you go see Oppenheimer, and then go see Barbie, you're, I I would imagine that your heads, your brain's still going to be swirling over what you just saw with Oppenheimer. Whereas Barbie, not to discount it, it's but the the reviews so far are fantastic. It looks like great fun, but I think Oppenheimer is probably the weightier of the two in terms of its of its uh harsh material so yeah i i would recommend barbie first oppenheimer second uh yeah the way i looked at it was you know watching barbie before oppenheimer you know it, it might soften you up a little bit before you get emotionally tossed around by christopher nolan but you know then again if you're watching oppenheimer first it could leave you emotionally spent and 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 maybe that's the answer maybe you go into the barbie movie with no emotion whatsoever and you want to get uh, you know a little bit of a pick-me-up that might be the the way to go yeah, there's there's probably no right or wrong in this. I would do Barbie first, Oppenheimer second, but for sure. And I, like I just watched a review of Oppenheimer on YouTube that says like it's a it is a a heavy heavy movie about a guy who wanted to help the world 
And when he's faced with the reality that he created this thing that killed so many people, like, how do you live with that? And then you walk out of the movie theater and you're like, okay, I need to, uh, I need to laugh like right now. So <laughs> walking into Barbie might be a, a perfect antidote, so to speak. Yeah, that's a good uh, that's a good call. Brett McGarry is the co-host of The Couch Potatoes, which you can hear here on CHML Saturdays at 1 p.m., Sunday nights at 7. And he's also the co-host of The Start, the morning show on sister station CJOB in Winnipeg. One more question for you. Which sure. of these two movies, Oppenheimer and Barbie, which of the which is more likely to unseat last weekend's box office champ, that being Tom Cruise's latest Mission Impossible? Barbie, Barbie by a landslide uh, for two reasons. One, it's it, it's made to be accessible to everybody. It's they and they're 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 at, they're very proudly saying, if you like if you love Barbie, come see this movie. If you hate Barbie, come see this movie. They've made it in a way. <laughs> where anybody can watch it and enjoy it because Margot Robbie apparently is uh, amazing. Ryan Gosling is a scene stealer. Mm-hmm. And whereas Oppenheimer, A, in the United States, it's restricted. It's rated R. So right there, that's that will reduce its box office numbers. B, its length at three hours will just reduce the number of times the movie can be shown in a day. And C... It's July. It's the middle of the summer movie season where people enjoy going to see popcorn fluff and going to see a movie about the father of the atomic bomb. While a lot of people are excited because it's a Christopher Nolan movie and it looks fantastic. And by all accounts, it is fantastic. But that's not like when Christopher Nolan directed The Dark Knight. That was a movie about Batman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like It was a heavy movie. But this is a, a movie about a real world thing, a real world awful thing. And not everybody wants to spend three hours at the movie being reminded about this terrible piece of human history. So, yeah, Barbie wins uh, in a landslide, but Oppenheimer still will do very well over the course of its run. And it's got three weeks on the IMAX screens, so that should help as well because you got to pay a premium to get into those screens, right? So, yeah, both of these movies, I think, will do quite well. I think I think so, too. And I think they're going to be both great and can't wait to see both of them. Brett, thank you for your time this morning and uh, enjoy the flicks. All right. Brett McGarry is the co-host of The Couch Potatoes and The Start on Global News Radio 680 CJOB. Enjoy both movies if you're going out to see them. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.